it was almost like the cycle of abuse, even though there was no abuse between us physically. Mm -hmm. You go through this honeymoon phase and then they make promises and then the cycle continues back around to building up the tension and then another intervention. And it was just this sick cycle. The moment that I asked him to leave, I knew he was walking out that door, possibly potentially straight to an overdose, but I couldn't save him. Welcome to Fight for Brilliance, a podcast where mental health, philosophy, and our stories inspire your life of brilliance. Welcome to this episode of the Fight for Brilliance podcast. I'm Justin Keller, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the show here today. I'm going to start out this episode by reading something to you. The loss of love in my marriage, the loss of Corey in my marriage, was the greatest grief I held within. Grief was a lonely venture. Grief married to addiction, even lonelier. Corey and I, we had the most powerful love on earth, but where was that love now? Those words are from today's guest, Megan Aronson. And throughout this episode, you're going to hear me add color to Megan's story by sharing some of her writing that she's done as she recalls her story of finding the love of her life, having to navigate deep grief, and then how she decided to choose radical love and forgiveness as companions alongside her husband's substance use disorder. This is a really powerful story, and I feel extremely honored to be able to steward that here on the podcast and to have what I consider to be an extremely important conversation. You know, according to an article from John Hopkins, currently substance use disorders affects more than 20 million Americans ages 12 and over. And so it's my guess that it is unlikely many of us would go through life without somehow being connected to a family member or a friend who is either impacted by or struggles themselves with a substance use disorder. And so if you have a loved one or a friend who is struggling, I think you're going to deeply connect with Megan as you hear just the reality of the struggle that she had as she tried to choose over and over again love, even amidst her husband's addiction and all of the things that came with that. And if you're someone who's struggling with addiction, you know, I hope that maybe you'll hear something in this episode that sparks maybe a little flame of courage in you to get some help, to be reminded that you're not alone, and to know that you are loved and worthy of a beautiful life still. And I think you'll see that and hear that as you get exposed to some of Corey's side of the story, too. So, with that being said, here's this episode with Megan Aronson called Kicking Addiction Out of the Home, Letting Go of Anger, and Choosing Compassion. I just wanted to start by reading 
the tweet that you have pinned on your Twitter profile. And it says, and I realize this would have been, it's 10 years probably now versus nine years ago, I believe, timing wise. But nine years ago, I was standing in line at a food bank. My husband had just stolen all of our money after I asked him to leave. He was dazed from an OD after injuring his back and getting hooked on opioids. I thought it was over, but then he went to rehab and won me back nine years sober today. Just start by unpacking that a little bit more for me as someone who's just getting to know you along with the listeners. That that tweet and that time in your life, describe that to me a little bit. Wow. Well, you know, I fell in love with my soulmate and was very lucky to find him at a young age. And addiction never changed the fact that he was my soulmate. And so, you know, he injured his back just two months after we met helping his grandmother with a home repair. And his addiction was something that he sunk into slowly. And we had doctors telling us all along that it was fine to take these painkillers and nothing else had touched the pain. He'd tried everything under the sun. And, um, and then it just became that one day I realized I was losing myself and we had lost 30 people in eight years and it was about death number 12. Wait, so between your husband's family and your family, yeah, you had and lost friends. 30 people in eight, and friends. Okay. In eight yeah. years. Oh, that's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, it really was an extremely difficult time. And I was so young. I was still in my 20s. And, you know, I didn't have anybody around me that had ever experienced that amount of loss. And so I felt really alone in it. Mm-hmm. And it really drove me being in that much pain. I was still in denial about what was happening with his addiction because denial is a very powerful force and we want to believe what we want to see you know, um, but, but that pain of all that grief and needing to find some sense of peace in it drove me to finding meditation. And that was when I started to hear my own inner voice again. And my intuition started screaming at me, red alert, red alert, something's going on with him. And you need Mm -hmm. to have the courage to face it before it's too late. So it was, about 10 years after we met and three kids later that I finally decided to confront him and I asked him to leave. And then things got really interesting from there. I want to stop right here because probably like you, I was completely shocked when Megan said that between her and her husband, they had lost 30 friends or family members over the span of eight years. Now, I've experienced loss, but even with the losses that I've experienced, I couldn't even begin to fathom that degree of loss, and especially in such a short span of time that they went through it. And this was a layer of Megan's story that I actually didn't know about before the interview. And so it instantly shed a different light on the dynamics of their relationship and even her husband's addiction. Megan wrote this about that. We were at the beginning of our lives, but we hadn't yet made peace with death. We'd both been capsized by grief long before we knew who we were, before we knew how to value the gifts of the time that we were given with another human being. 
Corey and I recognize the wear and tear on each other's faces beneath our dewy 20-something glows. I think we both wanted to put our best faces forward, say that we'd moved on. We were good and healed now, unchanged, unmarred by our tragedies, our wounded childhoods, our adolescent attempts at adulthood. But the truth was, we were both still raging against the absence of our beloveds. We were broken and lovely, beautiful and bruised. Now, like you have probably seen in your own life, I know that everyone copes with loss and with grief just so differently. And so I was curious, how did this extreme loss in both of their lives impact them together? You know, I wonder first, had you ever even dealt with the loss individually, that the losses that you had been through, and had you guys dealt with loss together to figure out, okay, is our head right and our hearts right and our minds right now through all that we've been through already? Have you, did you guys ever deal with that? Well, he was kind of numbing himself out with the painkillers. And so he wasn't really mm. dealing with it, which left me even more isolated in it. Yeah. We had both had really defining losses in our lives right before we met. I had lost my nephew who was three and he had lost his mm -hmm. best friend in a drunk driving accident. And so in the beginning, that was what brought us together. Our love and building this new life together gave us the ability to overcome that grief and, and give us something positive to work towards together. But then when all these other losses started happening, I, I just felt so alone in it that I really had to become my own best friend. And I learned that um, in my 20s, I'd had the privilege of studying with this guy named Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, and he is the founder of Nonviolent Communication, which is basically a language of communicating through feelings and needs, mirroring and empathy. And one of the things we learned was self-empathy, that you can give yourself that same attention that your pain really needs. Pain is like a person and it just wants and needs our attention. And in a way, it's also kind of like a dog with a ball that it's not going to leave you alone until you do pay attention to it. It's going to seep into every area of your life until you give it that attention. So I would do these things called internal investigations where I would just kind of sit and get quiet and ask myself, what am I feeling? What does this pain need or want from me right now? Mm. And then just dig deeper and deeper and get underneath those layers till I got to the core of it. And then there would be this sort of alchemy that the pain became a power inside of me instead. Megan writes this. To onlookers, I had the most amazing husband. Corey was the kind of guy who woke up early to watch the kids while I slept in, rushed straight home from work every night, and spent all his money on his children. No one could see inside of our home, though. No one could see how slyly Corey manipulated me every day as he led me down rabbit holes of eternal life-sucking chaos, telling me, everything's fine, it's great. He was the author of his own double life. Loyal, steadfast, pull the moon down for his queen by day, selfish, deceitful liar and betrayer by night. Except day and night existed always within him. While Megan is learning how to cope with the pain of loss, 
she's had to spend years now confronting the reality that the man she first met, the man that she once would have described as her dream husband, a cliche love at first sight story, he was slowly changing into someone different. And now they're married, they have three children under the age of five, and she's facing the reality that a short-term solution to this back injury has definitely turned into a full-fledged addiction. In September of 2013, Megan wrote this. It was 3 a.m. and the kids were sleeping, but I lay awake, counting the seconds between my husband's breaths. I watched him breathe. I watched him not breathe. I held my breath, waiting for his chest to rise and spread wide again, wondering if tonight would be the night this addiction finally killed him. I worried he'd wake and find me hovering over him from the foot of the bed, so I slipped quietly out into the dining room. It was nearing 5 a.m. and the world was just starting to wake, and a light beginning to stretch across the small patch of grass in our backyard. A pair of doves began to coo. Finches were chirping their welcome songs in the trees. Morning was upon us, which meant Corey would be up any minute if he woke up. How would I feel if I walked back into our room to find I'd waited five seconds too long? I spun myself in circles, pacing the cold tile floor. I can't do this anymore, I thought. I can't. I won't. I have to do something now. It had been ten years of Vicodin slowly sucking Corey away. Like a solar eclipse, I watched the light of his soul disappear behind the darkness of the moon. I'd adapted to his fading light. Because that's what humans do. Were you afraid to just step away because of all that you had already been through together at all? Yeah, I I had a lot of failed interventions with him. And then it was, you know, it was almost like the cycle of abuse, even though there was no abuse between us physically. Mm-hmm you go through this honeymoon phase and then they make promises and then the cycle continues back around to building up the tension and then another intervention. And it was just this sick cycle. And it wasn't until I started taking care of me and taking the focus off of him and, and deciding to bring myself back into, you know, my power and my strength, my courage and my intuition that then I I could finally face that. And yeah, for a long time, I just didn't think I had the strength to do that. You know, I didn't think I had the power to walk away. Even in a deep love, sometimes it's formed through a trauma bond, right? And sometimes that's really hard to let go of. And you almost get used to the trauma and almost addicted yourself to that where that's the normal for your life and you accept that. And so, you know, I was, I was wondering if you ever had a, just a wake up moment or a deep dark moment where all of a sudden you're like, this is not normal. This is not the way it's supposed to be for me. And as painful as this is kids as little as six months old, like I can't, I can't. That's exactly what happened. I just had this, I had something just kind of building in me for the year before I actually kicked him out. And then those last few months right beforehand, I started a little class to teach moms how to get through parenting without losing themselves. And it was my Mm -hmm. first 
way of kind of jumping out of the deeply worn rut that we were living in and just doing something extraordinarily different, taking massive action. And it helped me to remember my own power and strength again. And then I just had this this moment, like it, it was just building in me that, you know, all these little signs and hints were popping up that he had reached a really dangerous level of addiction. And if I didn't do something, I was going to lose him, you know? Yeah. And, um, but it was more that I just realized, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And when people show you who they are, believe them. And it was suddenly realizing that I was powerless over his addiction. And all I had power over now was what I was going to do for my life and my kids' lives. And that was the moment when I finally, like, I just decided I, no matter what the cost, I have to, I have to try something different and walk away. I've never walked in your shoes and I'm, uh, I, I'm appreciating so much, uh, just the openness of your story and the way you're sharing it <laughs> with somebody who you are literally meeting for the first time face to face like this right now, virtually here. <laughs> and so I appreciate that. And I know it's not always easy to, to rethink and relive those things. So I don't take that for granted. Did you ever battle with this idea of, I feel really guilty because I'm going to probably make him worse. He's not going to recover when I walk away, he's probably going to get worse. Did you battle with that, that guilt at all? So much, so much. I mean, the, the moment that I asked him to leave, I knew he was walking out that door, possibly potentially straight to an overdose, you know, Mm. but I couldn't save him. I, 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 I stayed up all night the night before watching him breathe and not breathe. And I suddenly just realized that everything I had tried had failed to save him. And I had to just give it over to a power greater than myself to do that for me and, and let him hit his rock bottom because that's where change begins from. He needed to feel the pain of his own choices. And I didn't kick him out hoping that he would go to rehab. I really just was focused on, I need to take care of me and my kids and what's right for us. Corey came from a childhood where addiction and alcoholism, they were present in his family. He himself, he had tried more drugs before he was 15 than most people try in a lifetime. He'd come out of that with only a scar of a smoking addiction. He made it out of his early 20s and his years of bar hopping, clubbing, traveling the world as a rescue swimmer in the Navy. And it wasn't alcoholism that would take him under. It was that little bottle of pills. It wasn't heroin, Coke, meth, or vodka. No, it was that tiny bottle of prescription pills. This would be his undoing. And Corey is not alone. According to a report in 2022 from the Stanford Lancet Commission on the North American Opiate Crisis, It stated that without urgent intervention, 1.2 million people in the U.S. and Canada will die from opiate overdoses by the end of the decade. That's in addition to the more than 600,000 who have died since 1999. Another study from the CDC stated that between April 2020 and April 2021, 75,000 Americans died from opium overuse. That's more than 75% of the total deaths from drug overdose. And that was a 50% rise year on year. 
So this is a major issue. And Corey was headed down this same dark path. He was desperate, desperate to feed his substance use disorder. He was already going to drastic measures to get his supply and then to get his fix. What he would do is he would break down the pain medicine and he would then take it through an intravenous injection so that he could have a more immediate release. And so Megan knew that this was out of control and the only way for her to love Corey now meant letting him go. In doing so, though, she had to face the tough reality that he's either going to get help or he's going to become one of those statistics that I read. Now, thankfully, Corey chose to put himself in a rehab program. He started with an outpatient program, and then it didn't take long into that program that they could see the severity of Corey's substance use disorder, and they strongly recommended that he needs to get into an inpatient program. And so Corey made the courageous decision to fully surrender and do whatever it takes to recover. Corey writes this about that. My first night in rehab was rough. I'd been injecting a thousand milligrams of Oxycontin a day. My body was worn out, drug deprived, and I was emotionally drained. At this point, I was going through full-blown detox. I was irritable, sleep deprived, and consumed by nausea. All my thoughts were consumed with shame and guilt. All I could think about was how much I wanted to be home with my wife and kids and how bad I had screwed things up. Now hearing Megan's story up to this point, I was curious what creates the ability for someone to have such strong love and compassion for her husband despite all that he had put her through. And so I asked her, where does that inner strength come from? Well, my parents have been married for almost 40 years. So I have That's had amazing. a really cool example of love. <laughs> mm. And um, my mom's first marriage was with an alcoholic that eventually passed away. So I also had that as kind of a backdrop to my life, you know, that this was kind of the other side of it. And there was, you know, they say alcoholism and addiction are a family disease. So, you know, there were definitely yeah. many branches of my family where that existed. Um, but I think what prepared me the most was really going through all that loss on my own and having to find the tools to get through, to, to dig myself out of any really hard rock bottom moment, you know, and I, I had confidence that I was going to get through whatever was ahead. And I had mm -hmm. trained myself to believe that all things could work for good in my life and that I could expect the best, even in the worst thing that could happen to me. I knew what was coming was going to be really dark and really hard the moment I asked him to leave, but I wanted to believe that there was something beautiful on the other side. And so I decided to fixate on that what's the, uh, the beautiful that's going to come on the other side of this? I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to keep going until I find out. I'm not going to stop until I get there. Yeah. So the ability though, to do that can only be acquired through unfortunate situations where you come through on the other side and you say, holy shit, I survived. <laughs> right. I mean, is that sort of where you found yourself is like, okay, all the shit I've been through, Maybe there's a point because it's helping me right now. Yeah. And I feel like 
whenever, you know, push comes to shove like that, it's, it's like that the thing that is happening in your life is pushing against you. And if you, you can decide then to push back with equal and opposite force, you know, it makes me want to dig deep and go, okay, all right, I'm going to give it all I've got. Mm. I'm going to get through this, you know, and, and then I, I get to know this other level of my own inner strength that I never knew before. And that's why I don't think we should be scared of the difficult situations in our lives because they're our growing place. That's how we grow. You could have said, Hey, life, nature, God, whoever, providence, whatever you want to call it. Like, why is this happening to me? Did you have any of those raw moments in your life where you did let yourself actually feel like a victim or did you just muscle up through it? Well, when we were going through all the losses and amid that, we we lost everything in the recession in 09. We lost a baby. I lost my job of five years at, the t- at a TV station. Those in those days, I absolutely was feeling like a victim. I nicknamed myself the Grim Reaper girl because I felt like death followed me everywhere. And then, mm. you know, you just you know how they say you get you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> yeah. I just kind of reached a point where I realized that was not serving me. That was not getting me anywhere other than just staying stuck. And mm. I had to be responsible to save myself. You know, I remember the day someone said to me, no one's coming to save you. And I was so mad at them at first, you know, like, well, (laughs) I want someone to come save me and make this easier for me. But when you realize that you do have that power to save yourself, it actually is is a really incredible feeling. Even to me, more than the idea of someone helping you realize that no one's coming to save you, I think one of the tougher realizations that I feel like you came to that I, at least I'm in just listening to would be when you realized you can't save your husband yeah, and to like relinquish, like this is the person that you're supposed to probably be able to carry the load for them when they can't. Right. I mean, forget roles and all that bull crap. Like this is a union of when you're down, I'm, I'll carry us when, when you're up, you know, I might need some help. So that's to me, that must have been just a difficult realization of like, I can't save him. Yeah. And, you know, in the beginning, it was honestly anger that fueled me. You know, mm. I felt betrayed and that anger actually served as a positive force for me and giving me the ability to kind of put up a really hard barrier between him and I, which was really the only way to separate myself from him because he was my soulmate. And even as an active addict. He was still a beautiful human being. Mm -hmm. He is one of the kindest, most generous humans that you will ever meet. And so it made it really hard, you know, because he was, it was a gray area. It wasn't black Mm -hmm. and white, you know? So anger in the beginning was really what gave me that strength. And then it was having to melt that anger into compassion. I wish I had had the tools of something like Al-Anon at that time, but I had an idea in my head of what Al-Anon was that was very different than what it actually is. I, I have since learned the power of loving detachment where you can separate yourself from someone and it doesn't have to be physically. It can just be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, 
but do it with love instead of anger because you see who that person could really be. You know who they really are. Of course you love them. That's the only reason why you're staying in relationship with them. And you kind of reconnect to that underneath the anger and, and say, you know, I, I can't fix you and, and I love you and I, I hope you figure this out over there. And I'm actually giving you a gift and allowing you the autonomy to sweep your side of the street while I sweep mine. Megan describes addiction like this. Addiction is like grieving a thousand tiny deaths daily. And its finality of hitting rock bottom, it's like grieving 10,000 large deaths at once. Here's this from Corey. It took everything in me to stay sober. Having to manage all the emotions and having no contact with my family was excruciating physically and emotionally. The day after I received the order of protection, I was talking with another patient named Adam, and he had me open the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, read page 417, Acceptance. I opened the book and began to read. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact in my life, unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation exactly the way it's supposed to be this moment. I knew right then I needed to accept everything that had happened to bring me to this moment. I needed to accept that I was powerless over addiction that this was a disease and I was sick. I needed to do everything I could do to get better. From that moment forward, I threw myself wholeheartedly into the 12 steps and finally began my long journey to recovery. So eventually, through the process of putting our marriage back together and him going to rehab and getting the tools and going to AA, he taught me that addiction is a disease and it's not something that anybody wakes up and chooses. No one would choose to destroy their life and their relationships. No one. It's something that I'll never forget. Um, Austin Eubanks was a Columbine survivor. He survived that first high school shooting that really impacted us in America. And he became addicted to opioids and was addicted for probably about a decade before he um, got sober. And then he ended up traveling the country, giving Ted talks and speeches about recovery. And he would, he said something so profound. He said, opioid painkillers are hundred percent more effective at treating emotional pain than physical. Mm. And if you think about it that way, that is why so many people end up addicted to substances because they haven't learned those tools for coping with pain. And that's really what the process is in rehab is, is gaining those tools. When did you decide I'm going to choose to trust and put myself back into this situation that hasn't proven to be trustworthy? It was such a process. He when I kicked him out, he went and immediately stole all of our money in the night. And then a few days later, he threatened to kidnap our children. And that forced me to file an order of protection. And so I was suffering from some pretty severe PTSD and, you know, just reeling from that trauma. But I was doing everything I can't could every day to take the time to meditate and journal. 
and kind of hold my own hand through the process of processing these huge feelings and trying to every day choose to come back to faith over fear. Like that was just my core value. I was trying so hard to hold on to even in that trauma response. And then, you know, he, I, I started filing for divorce. I was done. I was, you know, after he made those last couple choices, I was just like, you know, I don't believe he's ever going to get better. And I started building a new life without him. And then um, my attorney fired me for no reason. Your attorney <laughs> fires you? <laughs> Are you really that difficult? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, usually a, usually a difficult client just means they can bill you more. So I'm thinking they would have kept you. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I'll never forget the moment that I got that letter in the mail. And I just looked up at the sky and I thought, there's something else going on here that I don't know about. And this is, I, I felt like magic and miracles were meeting me every step of the way along the journey. And that just felt like a moment that I didn't understand yet, but that I would eventually. And when he came out of rehab, he contested the protection order and we met in court. And that was like the most miraculous day of my life because Why? the second I saw him again, I realized he was my sober soulmate again. Hmm. Still makes me cry every time because he should be dead. He really should. He was days away from an overdose. He went through one of the most grueling recoveries that his facility had ever seen. And the fact that he was sitting there before me was just such a miracle. And I had equal amounts of love and hate in my heart for him. But all of these divine interventions kept happening in our life. Magic and miracles kept showing up. And it was like, no matter what we tried to do to destroy our marriage, love was this force that was trying to bring us back together. Talk about the, like you said, love and hate were both, I guess, coexisting. When you know hate is driving my feelings, my attitude toward him, my perspective of him right now, how did you navigate that hate? I had this woman who came over to help me around the house during that time. And, and I was telling her how I was feeling, you know, exactly along the lines of what you're saying. And she just looked at me and said, two truths can coexist. You can hate him and love him. You can want to leave him and want to be with him at the same time. And when I started to learn, I could live in the and instead of the or I could have both those feelings at once that really made a difference, but I wanted to just continue to lean towards love. And, and, yeah. you know, in the beginning, love was walking away because that was love for myself. Mm. And now it was starting to look like love was walking back towards him. And he really mm. did the work to earn that trust back. He, he made the amends he took the time to hear me and what my experience had been and gave me empathy and gave me a lot of patience. And I would have moments where I would just like violently swing back to fear and hate and he would just love me through it. And that was really how we built this bridge back over the chasm that addiction had created. Yeah. I think he, what you're hitting on too is just like, as I think about uh, there's two people that are both now choosing each other again. Right. This isn't you just doing him a favor, <laughs> you know, he's also like people want to probably say, well, he was the addict. He, he has to do so much more work 
and he should put up with her shit. <laughs> and instead, you know, I think that some compassion would do us all some good and say, that's a human over there too that just desires to be loved and, and accepted as is as well. And he's subjected himself to someone who says, I maybe don't fully trust you yet. I have moments of hate and he's still going to show up. I think that's something that you're commendable, but I think his actions are too as well, you know? Very much so. Very much so. He, yeah, you know, it was, it, it, we both had to redefine who we were. We, we, we were two entirely new people that came back together because we were no longer the addict and the enabler. That's great. Because isn't that every marriage anyway, or every relationship anyway that evolves? It's like, you do need to let go of the version they were as you grow, right? Yeah. And that was the, that was the choice that I made. You asked me about that choice. It was, it's always going to be something in marriage, whether it's addiction or it's grief or it's, you know, there are so many different issues that come up, parenting, losing a child, going through financial struggles. There's always going to be something in your marriage. It's how you choose to use it. Are you going to use it to grow closer together or apart? And sometimes apart is what's right. Only you know that. But we chose to go back together. Now, if you're in Megan's shoes, do you think that you could forgive Corey? I think that a lot of us would not because forgiveness is hard. (laughs) And I actually asked this question on social media. I said, what makes forgiveness hard? And I want to read you just a few of those responses. Someone wrote, it feels like forgiveness means that what the person did is okay. Someone else wrote that it's hard to forgive when the other person doesn't acknowledge they did anything wrong or ever apologize. It's hard to forgive because the hurt still remains. Someone writes, it feels like you're letting someone off the hook. Someone else says, forgiveness is hard because of our pride. Forgiveness is hard because it's easier to be the victim. And then finally, someone wrote, forgiving myself is actually harder than forgiving others. There's no doubt that forgiveness is something that we could all practice more and all are going to be faced with opportunities to practice. And along with that, it's accompanied by so many different layers of complexity, so unique to each of us. But no matter how difficult it is, no matter what our situation is, I do think that Megan offers a really valuable perspective on what forgiveness is and why it matters. She wrote this journal entry on September 27th, 2013. I hate what he did, but I'm working on forgiving him more each day and finding compassion because holding on to anger only hurts me and my kids. Maybe someone listening to this is going to say, hey, I've held on to a lot of hate. I don't need to walk back toward them, but I've held on to a lot of hate towards someone who made a lot of really hurtful decisions and impacted you know, my life. Um, that's, that's enough, right? That's, the story isn't about you have to also remedy the relationship, right? Yeah, and you know, forgiveness has been such a superpower in my life. It, it is really everything that I ever wanted came on the other side of that forgiveness. And I chose that forgiveness to him before I ever chose to take him back because I looked at myself and realized if I became a bitter, angry, resentful person, that was the gift I was giving my kids. 
and I would I refuse to give them that. If you could see me right now, I have I don't know what everyone calls them something different, but chill bumps, goosebumps, whatever you want to call them. I grew up in the north, so we say things differently than down here in Houston. So, but I've got chill bumps as you're describing that because of the power of this idea that you forgave before he earned it. Yeah, and that's he, that's something that not many people would be able to do. But it was a choice for me, not for him, because it's like this old saying, you know, um, holding on to anger is like drinking rat poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, it's all, it was only hurting me. It was only hurting my kids. And deciding to forgive him, it was just this moment of, you know, and I, I really had to have some divine intervention to give me the strength to do that. I will, I will be honest. It took everything in me to choose to forgive him and everything in me to take the risk to love him again and trust him again. But there was something deep inside of me that said it was right and that he was going to stay sober and that, you know, if I followed that path, I was going to get back to that something beautiful on the other side. I know you're a warrior, but I appreciate you saying that it took everything within you because hearing you say that humanizes the conversation for me in a lot of ways because uh, I, I can't relate to just making forgiveness through her an easy choice. How did you get the resources and the tools to help you get to that point of being able to do that? Because that's got to be a struggle too. You know, it really... I say, you know, go within or go without. It really was all coming from taking the time to get quiet and hear my intuition, God, whatever you want to call it. You yeah. know, love is another great word to insert in there. And, you know, when you're asking yourself, what would love do? How would love show up in this situation? You've had to ask yourself, what would love do multiple times throughout and, and it was at a point where what would love do, love would walk away. What would love do, love would forgive. And so there's, that's a, it's a beautiful theme that is running through as a thread throughout this whole story of yours, asking that question, what would love do? And I, I, people can discount it, but if someone doesn't know the power of genuine, um, hard-fought love, if they don't know what that feels like, love feels trite. It does. And, you know, that was the gift that we got out of all this was we got real unconditional love then. Yeah. 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 Having been through all that you've been through, there's not a one size fits all, but you have seen some things that maybe others haven't. And they're in the p place at the point of their story where they're being hurt, let's say, um, or they're trying to figure out how to forgive and move past. How do we love people well, that have either gone through recovery or are maybe still struggling with addiction. I like to say love is something you can never lose if you can have it for yourself. And so if you can find that self love again, which is something that tends to disappear when you're loving someone who's going through the struggles of substance use or mental illness or depression. I mean, there's a lot of situations where you end up loving somebody who isn't really able to love themselves or give you that love in return. But you can be the love in the situation by using something like that self-empathy where you're being your own best friend and you're giving yourself the things that you're trying to look for from them. And for me, it was very much finding other people that had walked the road before me 
and mm-hmm. taking the focus off of him and putting it back on myself. What do I want? What do I need? As soon as I was able to ask myself those questions, I was really clear on that. I no longer wanted to be in a marriage that was hurting me every day. For your husband, has he, does he still have moments where he comes to you and still feels like um, there's like he, does he ever feel like he owes you or he's just, is it, it, has he been able to shift to just gratitude that you guys have what you have now or what is the dynamic like for him? Does he have moments where it's not just rosy and he's got tough moments again still, and he can be honest with you. I just, on the other side of this, I'm just curious what it looks like for y'all. It's actually been more on my end, you know, that I am the one that goes to him and struggles sometimes worrying that he's going to start using again or, you know, it'll be something as simple as, you know, he's on the phone and I don't know who he's talking to and I wonder if he's talking to somebody bad and I'll go to him and just be honest. And that was something we learned really early on was radical honesty and just saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking right now. I love the way Brene Brown talks about it in terms of creating stories where you kind of check with someone and say, Hey, I'm creating this story in my head that this is what's happening. Can I check that story with you and see if it's true? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, right? Cause it's like, we could, we're all really good writers when it comes to judging other people's actions. Right. But <laughs> We are so good at filling in those blanks when they're there. We sure, you know? are. We sure <laughs> are. Yes, we are. And to your other point, um, he, I realized um, after we after he bought us our our house that we're living in now, um, five years later, which was basically our kind of our mini dream home. Um, he, we were standing in our kitchen, and he had made me this promise early in our journey, right after he just got out of rehab, before I ever decided to take him back. He said God told him we'd have a life beyond our wildest dreams. Mm. On the other side of this. And um, we were standing in the kitchen that day and he just said, life beyond our wildest dreams is just the beginning. And I had just talked to um, someone that was in um, recovery with him. And he had said to me that Corey felt so proud to buy us this house and worked so hard to recover his life and become a successful business person and reach that point that it was his living amends. And so I think he has just continued to live his amends, but it's not something where he lives in shame and guilt. We, we try to choose the love. Until this conversation with Megan and working on this episode, I didn't ever know the magnitude of this problem. And so I wanted to understand how has this become what it is in the first place? Now, there's an article from Harvard Research that points to the 1990s as a catalyst for the opiate problem. There was this push by public health officials to try to improve pain treatment in the United States. So in 1995, Dr. James Campbell addressed the American Pain Society, urging that healthcare providers treat pain as the fifth vital sign, highlighting the essential need for improved pain care. Well, doctors and nurses, they were given this impression that pain should be totally relieved. And a great way to treat that pain is with narcotics. Now, at the same time, OxyContin, which was promoted by Purdue Pharma, 
and approved by the Food and Drug Administration enters the scene. And with it, we saw the first wave of deaths linked to the use of legal prescription opioids that was triggered. Now, although the public health effort was probably well-intentioned, the consequences are very obvious now because as doctors needed to reduce opioid prescribing, many people have needed to turn to street dealers to get drugs. But because prescription narcotics are expensive, people switch to heroin, which is much cheaper. And as we know now, there's a major issue where heroin is often laced with the even more dangerous drug, fentanyl, adding to what is considered an opioid epidemic. And this part is sad because it was later found out that Purdue Pharma had presented fraudulent descriptions of the drug so that it appeared to be less addictive than other opioids. And so again, there's the profit motive of the pharmaceutical industry that remains ever present. And I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but if you dig a little more, there's even preliminary evidence that supports that hospitals may have financial incentives that link Medicare reimbursement rates with patient satisfaction ratings on surveys that they take. And so they find that hospitals that had a lower patient satisfaction ratings, they were actually reimbursed at lower rates. And of course, those surveys include pain-focused questions. So speculative to some degree, but it's possible that some providers might feel pressure to prescribe opioids to ensure patient satisfaction is higher as they improve pain care. And so in working on this episode, my eyes have just been opened to a whole different world. And I know Megan has had to live in this reality, in this world, and advocating for awareness and solutions is something that she cares deeply about. As you advocate for, um, you know, addiction and helping those with recovery, how much of it do you think is a component of we need mental and emotional resources more than anything um, and just the early intervention of, of those tools, uh, how much of it is that versus the clinical, I guess, aspect of helping those with, you know, rec- um, addiction issues? Well, I think it's, you know, there are so many different factors right now in terms of how our, our country and our culture, our society has become addicted to a quick fix for pain. Mm-hmm. And, I, that's why I, I share my story and I want people to see that I live this joyful life now after all this incredible adversity that I've overcome because I leaned into pain and I taught myself how to lean into it and how to alchemize it and turn it into power. And I used those rock bottom moments as a launching pad instead of a docking station. And so I, I do think that that mental health care is a huge, huge piece of it. And I think it's taking it back as far as we can along the the path of this progression to full-blown substance use or abuse. Um, you know, I think about moms who aren't getting support as they're raising children yeah. and are facing their own mental illnesses. I think about kids who are having adverse childhood experiences and not getting that intervention. There's so many different points along the way we could make a difference. 
And it's talking to our kids about these things and letting them see what we're struggling through. If there's mental illness in the family, you know, if there's grief, if there's loss, I was always protected mm -hmm. from all that. My, my parents thought that they were doing right by me by not letting me see them go through pain, but then I never had an example of how to do it. And so mm -hmm. I've let my kids see me grieve. They know our story of what my husband and I went through. I, I show them my process so that hopefully by the time they're out of the house, they have a model they'll fall back on. How old would your, your oldest be when this, when you did leave? She was six years old. How did you talk to her at that point about dad? You know, honestly, I did not have the capability to do it then because I could barely talk to myself about it. I could barely be honest with myself, but I would say things like, so I couldn't really talk to her about the addiction side of it, but I, I still let her see me go through the pain process. Okay. You know, I was crying. I was upset. Dad was in the hospital is what I told her at the time, you know, and then when she got a little bit older, it was immediately going back and helping her understand what had happened when she was so able you, to you you did that retroactively as she was able to um, age appropriately, like navigate the conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard conversation to have probably. <laughs> it is, but I think that we have to talk about these things because, you know, it's likely that one of my children out of four is going to face these issues themselves. And mm -hmm. they need to know that, you know, we tend to isolate when we think we're the only one it's ever happened to. If there's yeah, models right. around us, then we know, okay, we can normalize it a little bit and honor the struggle. I think that when we can see what we're going through as kind of a warrior journey, even when it feels really hard and kind of turn ourselves into the hero in our own story and honor the struggle and normalize it for ourselves, for each other. I think it's so important that we do everything we can to talk more about our struggles with mental illness and substance use to normalize it, you know? Yeah. What is something that surprised you about yourself through all that you guys have gone through? Well, honestly, I, I think I've kind of learned I'm unstoppable. And I think that's, that's awesome. a pretty amazing feeling to gain out of so much adversity. I know that there's nothing that can destroy me because I have confidence in myself and my higher power that I'm going to get through it. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to stop until I do. And, um, you know, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it fun. It doesn't make it pretty. Um, but I try hard to just lean into whatever life is presenting me and um, see it as a growing experience. What can I learn from this and just mine it for that gold. And if I live my life with the purpose of always trying to grow, always trying to know myself more deeply, then everything that, that shows up in my experience is something I can use for good to hear that, that you've been able to get to that point, um, regardless of what comes your way, you still feel like you can hold on to that. That's beautiful. I'm curious, as you think about the people around you, you think about your kids, those who know you, what do you hope the story is that they tell of you? You know, I think we all get broken open many times in our lives. And I want to choose 
to continue to live an open-hearted, wholehearted life where I let myself feel the vulnerability of joy as much as the vulnerability of pain. And so I would hope people would say that I kept my heart open no matter what the universe gave me and that I still let love in and I still put love out even when I was in pain. I would hope that people would say that I I showed up authentically and, and I let them see me at my worst and my best and never try to make it look like this is easy because I know it's not. It's really hard and sometimes it takes absolutely everything you have in you. But then when you realize that, you you just get to step up into this next level. I say, I use the phrase rise again and you talk about fighting for brilliance. You know, mm-hmm. when you get that feeling there is nothing like it on this earth and that feeling lies on the other side of your pain on the other side of your fear on the other side of rejection and betrayal so if i could leave the listeners with anything is whatever is challenging you right now see if you can just shift your perspective to to look at that thing as what does this have to teach me how can i Mm -hmm. dig in and learn from this what kind of a life can i have on the other side when i rise again I want to close by reading this from Corey. I still couldn't believe that I'd been given another chance to be the husband, father, and lover I always dreamt of being. The day Megan asked me to come home, I felt overcome with emotions. So many different feelings were rushing through my body at once. I felt excitement, joy, relief, shame, guilt, and fear. The joy came from being reunited with my family again, but the guilt, fear, and shame, they were equally present. Above all though, I was overcome with a sense of gratitude. I learned from the 12 steps that if I was diligent in my pursuit of recovery, the promises were that everything and more would be restored. I was witnessing this all unfold right before my eyes. My life was a puzzle once in a million pieces and it was slowly being put back together and made whole. If you are struggling at all with any addiction, please get help. You are not alone and you are not too far gone. I want to remind you that you are lovable and I want to ask you to give people the chance to show you that and allow yourself to actually have the beautiful life that you are still so deserving and worthy of. And if you are struggling, I've included the National Helpline for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in the show notes, but that is 1-800-662-4357. Again, that's 1-800-662-4357. They can help uh, locate uh, some help near you, recovery centers near you. Another simple way to do that would be to just send your zip code via text message to the number 435748. Again, you can text your zip code to 435748 and you can find help near you. So please do that. Or if you know someone struggling, connect them with this, let them uh, get the information they need to get help as well. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find the links and all the details to connect with my guest, Megan, inside of the show description, wherever you're listening to this. 
And then you can always connect with me on social media using the handle at Keller Thinks on all platforms. And you can find full episodes along with the full video versions at fightforbrilliance.com. And if you would, take a minute and just leave a rating and a short review if you haven't done that yet. And then make sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you are listening to this as well. Until next episode, here is your reminder to fight for brilliance in every area of your life. Thank you.